everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Humans Grinnell. My name is Scott Liu. Um, I'm from the class 2022, and I'll be one of the co-hosts today, along with Wajiha, who's also from the class 2022. Um, so today on the show, we are going to be talking about Texas immigration and policies. So just like always, for the first 50 minutes or so, we'll have some prearranged questions for our wonderful guests, and then we'll reserve the last 10 minutes um, at the end of the show for any questions that come from the audience. So if you have any questions along the way, just type them in the chat box and we'll be able to take it um, at the very end. So before we get started, would you, uh, you want to introduce our great speakers for today? Yes, of course. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, like Scott said, my name is Wajiha, and then today we have two great alumni to speak with us. Uh, first, we have Sarah Leibowitz, who graduated from Grinnell in 2004. She majored in history and then went on to pursue a master's in international relations from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. Um, currently, she is a policy director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Texas. Sarah is also a fellow of the Truman National Security Project and was named Forbes 30 under 30 list for law and policy. So that's awesome. And then we have Sylvia Foster Frau, who graduated from Grinnell in 2015 with a bachelor's in English. In 2016, Sylvia went on to work at San Antonio Express News in Texas, where she covered um, topics like immigration and border affairs, reporting in depth on separated families, border security and immigration courts. She was also the paper's lead reporter on the 2017 Sutherland Springs mass shooting, closely documenting um, the small rural community's grief and recovery for over a year. Currently, Sylvia works at the, for the Washington Post, where she writes about multiculturalism in the US and explores the diversity of our country and its changing demographics through storytelling. Sylvia has won many journalism awards, including um, Express News Reporter of the Year Award, Texas AP's Michael Brick Storytelling Award in 2018, and then in 2019, she won the Texas AP Star Reporter of the Year in the biggest newspaper category, so that's awesome. Um, again, thank you so much for taking time out of your uh, busy day to speak with us. We're so happy to have you. Thank you so much. Yeah, so just to start off, we wanted to talk a little bit about both of your backgrounds. Um, everyone has slightly different career paths, but we're wondering, like, have you always known that you're interested in pol politics and social justice? Or was there ever like a specific moment, um, an event that like made you very passionate, inspired you to get involved? Well, I guess um, I know for me, um, it was actually an internship that I had through the Grinnell Link program that opened my eyes to journalism. It was uh, an internship at Minnesota Public Radio, and it totally opened my eyes to that entire field, that entire industry that, you know, my family didn't work in that industry. They're both teachers. And so um, I, I learned that it was the journalists that I was with there were passionate people who cared about politics and its impacts on people's lives, who cared about people and, and um, issues that I found were important to me. And so it was actually from that internship that I started like fully pursuing other internships related to journalism and, you know, applying for that then when I was graduating for a career in that. Um, and so I, you know, I, I guess I would say it was um, experiences learning what I loved at Grinnell and learning what I was passionate about there. And then also experience like practical experiences in the working world through internships that kind of led to this, um, led to this career. Yeah, and okay. this is Sarah. Um, I, I would say for me, um, I knew when I was at Grinnell, I wanted to do something broadly that would help people and that I was interested in how the government worked. And I don't even think that this was before there was any kind of concentration in policy studies or human rights even. And so it took some experimentation after Grinnell. Um, I, I was temping in DC, which is where I'm from, after spending a few months traveling around Australia and like waiting tables. Um, I took a, temp, a series of temp jobs and ended up Temping at the Fair Labor Association in Washington, D.C., where I then worked for the next two years and I met my longtime mentor who really kind of grew me into the human rights field. But it was some combination of like a broad target zone. Like I knew it broadly that I wanted to help people and work on international stuff. 
and then some dumb luck and willingness to experiment and take risks that kind of found me um, in this place where I was working on social justice issues and with respect to labor rights, particularly for low-wage workers in the supply chain. And then that relationship with my mentor, with others, really helped my career take off in the in the human rights field. But now y'all have like policy studies, classes in human rights. It's like a very different, um, very different academic environment than when I was there. It makes me feel old. That's pretty interesting. I didn't realize like how new the policy studies concentration and stuff like that was to the Grinnell academics. So that's pretty cool. Um, so again, Can I just say one word on that? I think yeah. I didn't even know what po I like went to graduate school and then it, it wasn't until I worked at the State Department where I was like, oh, this is what policy is. Um, and, you know, it was really we didn't have that academic framework um, and policy is, I think, a very practitioner oriented field. Um, it's hard. In some ways to study there is a lot of just doing it that's required but um i think it's great the way that the college has evolved on that front yeah that's pretty cool yeah um so i know both of you have like briefly mentioned like um we briefly mentioned your journey to your current occupation but like just want to know in a little bit more detail like what the path from grinnell to your current current career was like both of you mentioned internships or like working um right after grinnell but going on from there to where you are today. So just kind of elaborate on that. Um, so for me, you know, it started with that internship and um, I don't know, I guess I don't know what Grinnell is like now, but um, in the 2011 to 2015 period, there wasn't a journalism track or major. Um, there weren't really any journalism classes either. Um, it, you know, it's a, it's a liberal arts school and you're gaining critical thinking skills and, um, all sorts of other like really important tools that have helped me in journalism, but there was no like kind of straight class or path like that. So I really felt like from my career, it was important to get that kind of extra practical experience. And, you know, to Sarah's point too, in journalism, I found that doing it is, you learn a lot more from doing it than studying it. And so in that sense, um, I really have not felt like I, missed out in some great way by not going to journalism school or not getting my um you know journalism masters because i i got a lot of those critical thinking skills that are really important research tools you know like journalism isn't just necessarily writing though obviously that's really important it's also researching and fact checking and um how to talk to people of all different kinds of people you know from politicians to just regular people on the street to you know in my case as an immigration reporter asylum seekers and immigrants and refugees and like um those are you know skills that aren't necessarily you're going to find in a, a straight journalism classroom so um you know i was i was very involved with the creative writing scene at grinnell um i took fiction classes like all the time whenever i could um and um, I, I still like kind of, I, I think learning to write in those different styles also probably helped in my journalism writing because, you know, there's there's kind of a certain formula for articles, but there's also um, ways that you can kind of break that formula and get creative. And I think having that kind of training at Grinnell has really allowed me to like explore the creative parts of, of writing an article more than, more than I would have otherwise. Um, and so I took that and then what happened my junior year, I did um, the ACM urban studies program in Chicago and I interned there at a bilingual newspaper called Extra News. I think it's now since um, shuttered, but um, I got some like really good practical experience for that for a semester and then stayed there through the summer Then returned my senior year of college. I was um, involved with the Grinnell Review. I was like a co-editor for that magazine. And um, then um, was applying like crazy senior year to like any job. <laughs> I think I still get like spam from like um, things that I like clicked on to apply that were like not legitimate. Um, and then landed the Hearst Fellowship. And that was really my launch into journalism career. The Hearst Fellowship is like a two year program. You're one year at one Hearst paper and another year at another. So my first year was in Connecticut and my second year was here in San Antonio at the San Antonio Express News. So it was really that like landing that fellowship while I was, you know, what that was one of many, many applications um, that senior year 
um, that like kind of launched me from there. I mean, I'm still in San Antonio, right? And that was my second year of that fellowship. So um, that was kind of my path, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think, Sylvia, that sounds more direct and intentional than <laughs> maybe my path. Um, I, yeah, like I said, I, I immediately after Grinnell, like moved to DC, thought I would work on the John Kerry campaign, waited a lot of tables at a German restaurant, like debated what I wanted to do, went to Australia <laughs> with my best friend. It was, um, and then sort of took a risk and jumped in on, on supply chain stuff, really through a temp agency. Um, and then from there, I mean, maybe there's a theme because I've ended up working on, you know, internet freedom, labor rights in the supply chain in Bangladesh, um, you know, military assistance to Bahrain after the Arab Spring, disaster recovery and housing policy. And now I work at the American Civil Liberties Union of Texas. So I've really kind of done a lot of different things in my career. And I, but some of the things that you were saying really resonate in terms of the foundation of what Grinnell equips you to do in terms of critical thinking, writing, networking. I was very involved in Rosenfield when I was at Grinnell. And, you know, that ability to make connections, build relationships, um, understand the landscape and, and the context, I think, was really helpful. Um, so I don't think that at any point in my career, it's where I would have predicted I would go. Um, but looking back on it, it makes more sense than it, than <laughs> it does kind of looking ahead at the time. Yeah, I think a yeah. lot of times you feel like you're wandering and aimless and like nothing makes sense. And then you look back on it and you're like, oh, that was actually a pretty great trajectory. <laughs> yeah, I feel like a lot of people I've talked to have definitely had those same experiences where they're not really sure what they're going to do, but then they land up in something that they really enjoy doing. Um, so I guess we wanted to move on to like Texas since both of you have a lot of experience there. Um, so first, like the snowstorm in Texas, like earlier this year was really impactful. So um, I'm not from Texas, so I don't really know too much, but I was wondering if there are any policy changes that are on the horizon, um, given the fact that there are a lot of different issues that were revealed um, due to the snowstorm. I mean, this is Sarah, one of the, so I live in Houston, and so I'd be interested in your perspective being in San Antonio, but. I moved to Houston in 2017, right before Hurricane Harvey, and then went to work in the housing department, which is the recipient of all the federal disaster funding. So very attuned to disaster issues. And so the experience in Houston during the blackout was this kind of repeated trauma of disaster. So like in the four years that I've lived here, I think we've had four federally declared, no, six, six federally declared uh, major disasters. And so there's this like repeated cycle. And my sense, I have a team where I've got people all over the state, is that folks in Austin experienced the disaster very differently than those in Houston, where in Houston, this was like, some, it was bad. It was, you know, people um, without power and water for weeks in some cases, but it was more familiar. And it was interesting to see people go through this kind of disaster for the first time. Also, in Texas, we tend to have big disasters in the summer, um, and our legislature meets in the winter. So um, the legislature happens to be in session right now, and that, I think, changes the dynamics in terms of the level of oversight and what is um, what might be possible in terms of policy change. We, for example, are pushing something called the um, the Power Act in the legislature, um, which is about direct payments to households directly affected by the storm. You know, does that have a chance of passing? I'm not sure, but um, there is much more attention to the issues presented by the blackout than I think there otherwise would have been had we been outside of the legislative session. Um, and it may be that we see another special session in the legislature to deal with these these ongoing issues. But I think it is honestly a little too soon to tell whether the um, the Texas Ledge will actually do policy changes as a result of this. Yeah, I would say um, in some ways, like this latest disaster is like a very similar story in the sense that in some ways you can say it, you know, it affected everyone, you know, there were households 
of you know really wealthy folks that didn't have power but in some ways um it did not affect everyone the same because you still see that the most vulnerable people um whether they're homeless or low income or um were disproportionately affected and i think the question is you know even if you know things are if, you know there's a weatherization you know money allocated to weatherization um statewide like i think the question is like what are some of the long-term effects of this that are you know people who have slipped through the cracks as a result of this that that are not going to get the help that they need um and you you see that play out like again and again um with different disasters here and houston in particular sarah like i i really felt for y'all just having gone through hurricane harvey um it just felt like like things had barely started to like come back to normal from that and then that hit and and houston was hit the hardest right of, of all um so it just yeah i think for some people and there was a recent report that came out too that um the 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 death count is like nearly double what, what the state is currently reporting it's nearly 200 which would make it like the largest disaster in texas in recent history or deadliest in recent history um so um yeah i think there's you know a long road to recovery that might not necessarily get addressed with so many other things going on yeah so um i mean you're talking about like the disproportionate impacts on lower income people um and then sarah you're also talking about um the direct payments that they're giving to people who are directly affected by the disaster um, but I was wondering, like you're talking about how it was kind of like a repeated cycle of disasters um, and then not much has always been done. But after this one, have you ever seen any kind of specific ways that politicians and their administrations have like changed how they deal or um, talked about income inequality and like changed their positions on some of these issues? Um, well, I was just talking to Sylvia about this. I think disaster uh, policy is a like very underexplored area of public policy. And if you're uh, someone early in your career in school, like I would definitely encourage you to look at that as a field because there's some really interesting disaster is one of these times when the federal government is unreservedly generous with communities, and what they do with the, that money is really interesting. So the state of Texas was sued in 2008 over its response to Hurricane Ike and how it redirected resources away from communities of color in urban areas in Houston and Harris County um, to more suburban and rural whiter districts. And that's always the tension with disaster. And one of the things that I was really proud to work on for the city of Houston was taking a much more equity oriented approach to disaster recovery. And what I'm pushing for now is that um, the, it's Dr. Susan Rice, who's the head of the National Economic Council, really taking on disaster recovery as an issue of racial justice. We did some analysis when I was at the city about how the way that FEMA calculates uh, disaster impact systematically undercounts social vulnerability, um, the way that the disaster recovery framework is written, it prioritizes um, middle class, largely white homeowners. Um, disasters exacerbate income inequality in Houston. The average white family after Harvey received $60,000 in FEMA assistance. The average black family received $84. So these are huge issues of um, economic inequality and wealth inequality. Um, and it all stems from housing and housing recovery. And so um, lots of opportunity if uh, folks are looking for exciting policy spaces to get into in the next few years. I guess I would just add that, you know, if you're talking about how, how politicians from different parties kind of perceive things, I think, um, you know, what's even considered a disaster crisis um, can change with um, along party lines too. Like if you look at what's happening with immigration and the border right now, like some people will say that there's a crisis and other people will say, um, you know, if you talk to a lot of um, border mayors, for example, we had a story recently where a lot of folks at the border said, like, we're fine, we're, we're you know, we're, we're handling it and, um, you know, there's no reason to completely freak out. Um, so I think, like, even what is defined or what is considered, you know, the most pressing crisis really depends on who's in office. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear, like, 
I'm kind of shocked by what Sarah said about like the fact that homeowners like white owners were getting $60,000 where like as black families were receiving like what $84 like knowing that's just that that's mind-boggling but at the same time it's really in terms of like other than um disaster emergency and policy like what other um what other uh what are like some of the most important political issues occurring in texas right now <laughs> what you think? Um, well, I, um, what are some of the, so um, I would say like the voting restrictions, which um, Sarah's working on is, is a big um, issue. Um, I would say like the border conversation, also an issue. Um, what else is there? <laughs> I feel like there's so many things. Pandemic, yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah, yeah, COVID. Abortion, I mean, just today, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very legislatively focused because that's important for my job. Oh, Sarah, I think you're muted. Can Sarah, can you hear us? Oh, <laughs> she just realized she's muted. Sarah? <laughs> I can't hear her. I don't know if y'all can hear her. I can't hear her as well. Okay. I, I didn't know if it was just me and I should just be quiet or not. <laughs> I'm back. My oh. dropped out. Okay. I'm, I'm new to WebEx. <laughs> okay, I, I would start over because I think you cut out like right when you started talking. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I would say that th th one of the dynamics in Texas is just that there are so many, so many different major metros. So unlike in Atlanta or, uh, you know, in Atlanta, you can kind of organize the city and then change the state. Here we've got Houston, Austin, Dallas, San Antonio. So lots of major metros. And as a result, one of the underpinnings of almost all of the political issues in Texas is who is in charge and whether it's the state government or the localities. And so when you look at, for example, the debate about policing or, um, you know, homelessness, um, abortion, a lot of it has to do with the tension between state and local government and the state's desire to consolidate power at the state level and strip the localities of their authority to govern. Yeah, I I do feel like it's a lot is happening in Texas right now, but like I'm kind of more interested in about the work on immigration with the new administration. So I know they're like with the shift in new administration and like how beliefs have changed um, on a federal level. How do you think this new administration changed your work on immigration? Um, yeah, so let me think there's there's a few things. I mean, on the on the one hand, um, we're we're seeing an increase in unaccompanied minors, and so there are um, there are like migrant child facilities popping up across Texas and along the border um, to try to accommodate for that. And I guess um, no, I, I guess at this point the biggest difference is the tone that the administration has set. Um, uh, you know, call for increased urgency to get um, especially the children that are in border patrol stations or stations that are meant to be very short term and definitely not designed for children um, to get them out of there and into federal um, child migrant child shelters. And so there's, you know, the Biden administration is being very vocal about the fact that it's that they, they want to get those children out of those stations um, and, and get them into those facilities. That said, you know, those facilities are pretty much the same as they were under the Trump administration, like their basic kind of how they operate. They usually have like a nonprofit um, that's that's operating these 
emergency facilities that are not state licensed, which is something that um, activists, um, you know, often take issue with. And, um, you know, there's also the question of when you're trying to hire staff quickly to accommodate for these new facilities that are hiring all these children, like kind of what corners are being cut when you have to hire people really quickly and um, um, what kind of conditions those children are living in. So, you know, in some sense, the, the questions about the facilities are the same, but you're hearing like a very different tone coming out of this administration about how the migrants should be treated, what should be done. You know, I think people in um, this administration have voiced that they want they want children to get out of there and reunite with their sponsors as soon as possible. And that's been kind of a problem that has has plagued the immigration system for a long time, which is that children can kind of languish in these facilities, um, you know, sometimes for months, just um, through this like lengthy vetting process. Um, and so trying to speed all of those operations up to get kids where they're trying to go um, has been pretty emphasized recently. Um, I guess a follow-up question to that would be, do you think there's a clash between the federal like tone that is being presented over media and like what, with what the state level of Texas, like, is there a clash of tone, like, I don't know, a conflict that's happening or is it, is Texas portraying the same tone that the federal, that we're seeing at the federal level? You mean specifically with immigration? Yes, with immigration. Um. Yeah, I, I would say there is a different tone between the state um, government and the federal administration. Um, the state government, um, you know, is is very it invests a lot of money in border security and has, um, you know, sent troops down to the border to kind of further secure the area. And I think has more of a um, kind of a a crisis framing of what's happening at the border of, um, you know, often talking about the surge of migrants that are coming to the border and, um, you know, we need to secure the borders and make sure that people are safe and protect American jobs. And, um, you know, it, it's very just kind of classic um, rhetoric from the Republican Party where um, rhetoric from the Democratic Party tends to focus more on um, the fact that these families are asylum seekers, you know, um, focusing on where the the asylum seekers come from, what they're fleeing. You know, a lot of these migrants that are coming to the border uh, are coming from, are fleeing for their lives um, from really poor conditions in their home countries. Um, recent hurricanes, um, you know, food insecurity, gangs, you know, threats of violence. Um, and so all of those things propel people um, to try to seek safety in the US as a place that, um, you know, they, they see it as a place that um, can be a haven from, from those things that are, are really destroying families over there. Um, so yes, there's, I would say there's definitely, um, you know, a line <laughs> um, between um, the two different uh, government approaches um, at the Texas border. Ditto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess we can move on to a different topic. Um, so I spread recently that the Texas Senate, they recently advanced uh, Senate Bill 7. Um, so like Sylvia was saying, it's intended um, to like limit kind of voting rights. Um, so I think it was to limit drive through voting and like the extended limits, the extended hours for voting at like polling places and more. Um, and like Republican Party, they've been arguing that this is more for like voting security, but how, what's the reception been like for Texas voters and like different policy organizations? I think maybe Sarah, you might be able to speak a little bit more about this. Yeah, so I'm getting in the car right after this to drive up to Austin and testify tomorrow in the Senate, in the House Elections Committee. The Senate voted through its, Senate Bill 7 is its omnibus uh, voter suppression bill that, as you say, makes voting more difficult, essentially takes away a bunch of the things that people really liked about voting in 2020. In some ways, the House version, the House bill, it's not quite a companion bill, but House Bill 6 is even more terrible because it just criminalizes every single aspect of participating in elections in Texas. So if you are an elections official and you make an honest mistake in violating the now very onerous uh, elections code, 
you could face criminal penalties um, that would throw you in jail. And, um, you know, if you fill out the form incorrectly, helping someone register to vote, you could face a third degree felony, which is the same felony class as kidnapping. And um, so that's happening in HB6, which we expect to be voted out of committee tomorrow. And then there's a whole rash of new bills that will be considered tomorrow, many of which continue on this theme of criminalizing participating in elections. So there was a lot of reaction to what happened in Georgia last week, um, a bunch of companies speaking out really too late in Georgia. Um, and frankly, the bills in Georgia, they were, we already had that in Texas. It was already illegal to pass out water to voters uh, in line in Texas. So this new ramped up effort to criminalize so many different aspects of participating in elections is very threatening. Um, and it's been cool to see just in the last week or 10 days, some of the organizers out of Georgia, Fair Fight, Black Voters Matter, they're amazing, have come to Texas and are bringing their strength and um, putting their shine in some ways off the, the failure to block the bad voting bill in Georgia, putting it on to Texas and to organizers here. Um, so it's going to be a, a space to watch in the next few days. I'm very interested, too, in what companies, um, Texas-based companies, continue to speak up and speak out because um, their voice makes a big difference on this stuff. Yes, just to follow up with that. Um, so I feel like a lot of voter suppression laws, they're happening um, because of a lot of changing demographics. Um, so like Texas is becoming more diverse and there is even a time period in the presidential election where some people thought it could even go blue or something like that. Um, so I was wondering like, how like these changing demographics are going to be affecting like the future of Texas policies and whether or not like you're starting to see some of that change occurring right now. I guess I can, you know, say that I, I think definitely both from a combination of, um, you know, more and more people of color being born in Texas and also just folks who are moving to Texas from out of state and often from states that um, have a really strong um, state government that provides, you know, um, ample amount of social services and other kinds of um, just government um, government services to their community that I would say like this, these kind of newer Texans are, are, are asking more from their state government. So, you know, when, when the power outage happened, you saw a lot of people who said like, you know, how is this possible? And, you know, like, this is something that that the state, you know, is supposed to, this is kind of like a, a foundational pillar of government, right? Like keeping the power on. And so um, that that kind of failure to do so, I think um, was, a, was a real alarm for, for the folks in Texas who um, are, are kind of representing this new wave or this new emerging group that, that are less satisfied with how things have been. I'm glad to see um, hopefully like a lot of changes happening with Texas. I think like from what I understand, like not being a Texas resident, like any um, other states have like other states have used Texas as like um, Texas is like paves the way for additional policies. Like um, Sarah was saying that regarding like not being able to hand out water at polling places like that's that was already a thing in Texas. And then Georgia was like following that and like um, we were recently learning about like Roe v. Wade and how Texas was one of the first states to kind of like push back on that and then other states followed afterwards. So it's like interesting to see how even policies in Texas could like affect future other states as well. But yeah, let's kind of change the topic, maybe a little bit light. Let's um, um <laughs> I just want to know like what parts of your job like do you find most interesting and yeah. Um, I guess my like favorite, one of my favorite parts of my job is the chance to interview and meet so many different kinds of people. Um, I just, there are so many people that I would never talk to or um, never have access to or run into on the street that um, I get to do because of my job. And I, I feel like everyone has something to offer or something to learn from, you know, because everyone's life story is so different and they've taken away different kind of lessons and perspectives from it. 
um, and and that part it just gives me so much like energy and life to like come off of an interview where like there's this person that I never would have talked to before that just has like an interesting story and like opinions that you know wouldn't have occurred to me before and so that's like one of the really like great things I guess about about being a journalist and and also when when a story is out and feeling like that that sense that like maybe you kind of help make a difference or open someone's eyes to something they didn't know before um, is also just really rewarding, um, especially if the story itself, you know, was difficult or like the topics of of some of this conversation, you know, like tough or you know not exactly like the the happiest things um, to talk about or deal with. But you know, having a finished product at the end that you think um, maybe made an impact is is a really great feeling. Sarah. Yeah, and I would I would just say, um, you know, moments like these where you know we're working in coalition with a bunch of different unlikely allies in some ways. You know, we've got you know these amazing organizers from Georgia who just like showed up in Texas. We've got big companies who are wrestling with what their role is, willing to speak out. Um, in addition to the kind of traditional group of civil liberties organizations or organizing groups in Texas that we work with, where we're like really adapting, really dynamically trying to block some of the this really high stakes, really bad legislation. I love those moments. And they're, you know, you don't sleep and you're, you know, you're sort of fueled by adrenaline, but you know, the idea that you're sitting sort of shoulder to shoulder with people pursuing common goals is just awesome. Um, but in the other piece that I really enjoy increasingly as as I've um, grown in my career is mentoring and developing young talent into the policy field. And, you know, both my grandfathers were diplomats. Like, I, I grew up with some sensibility around what is policy. And um, I think policy advocacy can be very obscure if you don't have that kind of early contact. And so I really um, just get a lot out of mentoring and developing people into the field um, and learning from people who come from very different perspectives and have a really different style than I do. And that's been, that's been really, really rewarding. That's great. Um, yeah, so like you're talking about how you've worked on a few different like different kinds of policies, um, but I was wondering if you've ever worked on a policy that has um, been implemented um, and then like, how does it feel um, when you when it finally gets implemented after you put in like so much time and effort into like trying to get it done. I mean, I played soccer all four years at Grinnell. I love winning. And um I um it feels great. I mean when we were fighting for um the after Harvey uh, the state wanted to take, they got $5 billion from the federal government. Um, they wanted to put it all in, in the state to control it, even though most of the impact had been in Houston, Harris County. And we just made this case that the impact had been here, that we knew best how to implement the money. Um, that it was this high wire act. It was really, we all flew to Washington. It was very dramatic and it was, it felt awesome to win. And, um, that said, there's like this constant vigilance, right? Like, you know, okay, you've won, you know, you've, you've climbed the big mountain, but it actually is much taller than you thought it was once you get there. And um, the effort then of how do you implement the policy, um, a lot of the times that's much less sexy and dramatic than like the headline grabbing victory. And um, it's in this work, you know, there's just been a number of times, you know, we suspended arms sales to Bahrain after the Arab Spring in response to their human rights record. But, you know, that's not a constant victory. You don't sort of say, oh, good news, we've done it and walk away and uh, that's it. It's just, there's a kind of constant vigilance to maintaining the victory, to seeing what the next target is. Um, so, feels good, but you can't get too comfortable. Thank you for that. Um, and then, so this is more of a question um, catered towards Sylvia. Um, 
this is in regards to media. So the media has like, we know that media has a very important responsibility to accurately portray information. And then in recent years, the media has been like heavily criticized, like for fake news or like sensationalizing um, different political issues in order to like get better rating and views. Um, so this is tough. And like, how must like, how have these criticisms affected your work and mindset when you're writing for the media? Yeah, I would say um, one of the challenging parts is the fact that um, a lot of people don't distinguish between media outlets. So, um, you know, you have places like I work, which is kind of a traditional mainstream Washington Post main mainstream outlet. Um, and and that gets kind of conflated with all sorts of alternative or just fake news sites, you know, that are then people are reading and thinking that it's real news and they, you know, are clicking on it every day or turning on that channel and um, that that to me is is very difficult um i i think there's you know in recent years been also this um sense that the media are like the enemy you know or that um we um are not to be trusted and that erosion of trust um has been difficult when you're tr just trying to talk to people and do your job you know because there's a lot more people that are wary of talking to me or think i'm going to twist their words or don't understand that like we have a very strict ethics policy and a very clear divide between um, our advertisers and um, the work that we do in the newsroom. And so it, it has made it harder to talk to people and um, harder to gain trust in the world where, you know, um, your your outlet um, is, is conflated with so many different outlets and different just things that are posted online, you know, um, and um, yeah, I, I would say it has been been harder in that way, but um, I mean, we just kind of keep doing our jobs, I guess, <laughs> at the end of the day. And, you know, folks who, who do know the outlet or do know just your work, like people who know my work and respect it, you know, that that counts for something and, and goes a long way. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Um, so this is a follow up, but I guess both of you Oh. Yeah, I, yeah, can I just say yeah. something about like the intersection of policy and media and that, you know, I've worked inside and outside of government and having relationships with reporters is just super important on any of the policy issues that I've worked on. And I think there's a sense that sometimes when you talk to reporters, they're always like shoving a microphone in your face and like wanting to get, um, you know, the gotcha quote. And Sylvia can correct me if I'm wrong, but in my experience, um, you know, oftentimes people in the policy field have relationships with reporters who cover their issues and you're constantly trading information and talking back and forth, um, you know, sharing information about what's happening in the field and um, some of the most important work that I've done has been really in partnership with reporters who are also interested in covering the, the issues that I'm working on. So understanding the media is a critical policy advocacy skill. And yeah, and we we rely on experts and scholars um, in their fields to write our stories, you know, to really understand, like sometimes you assign something or something happens and you're beat that you don't know anything about, you know, and so as a reporter, like you have to call all of the experts and scholars and people, you know, to like really just get an understanding, not necessarily to quote them, though we do that too, but also to just kind of wrap your head around like what is happening, like what are all of the complications and factors um, involved with the issue so that that when we do go to write, we can have like an informed article. Yeah, that, that all like definitely makes sense. Um, so like um, Sylvia, you're talking about how like when you talk to people, it's sometimes difficult because they don't necessarily trust you. Um, so like, I think both of you might have a little bit of insight on this, but I feel like in like the US politics have always had like rigorous debate. Um, but in recent years, it feels like we've reached a level of like divisiveness where people with different political views like can barely engage with each other without having like really toxic interactions, um, especially if it's strangers. But even at Grinnell, like some of my friends have told me like it's sometimes difficult to like have certain discussions about issues. Um, so like what are your thoughts about how we can like get back to like a place where we can have civilized discussions with one another? and how we can interact with people um, who don't have the same political beliefs in a way that like leads to a meaningful conversation and 
doesn't lead to like both people feeling angry or more divided after we're finished. I don't know, when is the golden age of political discourse in the US? What are we returning to? Uh, I have no idea, but I feel like in recent years, it's just gotten a lot worse. <laughs> I, I mean, don't know. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I mean, I'm curious say... what you think. <laughs> well, well, I guess I was just going to say that it's kind of cliche, but like approaching people with an open mind um, and, and going places outside of your comfort zone. I think part of the divisiveness comes from people kind of living in silos, right? Like you live in your bubble and you understand um, you know, what you think is going on in, in that bubble, but um, branching out of that or, you know, reaching out to other communities and, you know, reading more news. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, from the Washington Post, but um, like, like really trying to inform yourself of other other communities and perspectives and keeping an open mind about that. Um, I, I think can help, you know, like understanding where people's anger and frustration comes from and um, if it's if it is misdirected, like where what is the root cause of that, and can you help solve that? Kind of vague. I guess I would just say also that like housing policy is at the root of everything, and um, where you choose to live matters, and um, that can have you know I chose to move to Houston because it seemed politically ascendant and the place where I could have a more civically engaged life um, than I had when I lived in the West Village where you know it was had lots of great friends. They were almost all very similar to me. Um, and so moving into a place where I had just more projects, more interactions with people who are different than me was one of my goals. And, you know, I think as you think about where you want to live, like that will affect your ability and your, the, the kind of coincidence of, uh, how your life intersects with people who are similar or dissimilar to you. Yeah, I really like the idea of like getting out of your comfort zone and interacting with people that might be like even like a little bit different from you and kind of learning from that. Like when I'm in Grinnell, like before the pandemic, like it, as we all know, Grinnell is very liberal. So like it was very tough to find someone with necessarily like a completely different point of view. And like, you know, when you're agreeing with each other at all times, it's like, oh yeah, like, of course we're right. Like, yeah, of course, duh, who wouldn't think like us? But then when I come back to my own town and then I meet with people who have completely different points of view, and I'm like, whoa, okay, like, so this exists. And then I, I'm really thankful for like the opportunity in the, this past year to be able to talk to these people, understand where they're coming from. So I think that's a really good um, first step. Um, but there's also like people are also like these days they're kind of like okay like nothing's happening like we keep talking about issues, and um, we know like we know that like lasting change like takes time and hap often happens incrementally. But I think what I'm seeing a lot these days is that it's easy to like for people are easily feeling discouraged by the rate of progress or like um, to question the impact that they have um, individually. So like, what would you say to someone who has invested time in like learning about social justice issues or like has donated money or time to the organization they believe in, but feel like they want to do more, they feel like they haven't done enough. So like, what are some other steps that individuals can take to create change? I mean, I think figuring out um, who's doing interesting work um, where you live um, is a good start. Um, you know, I think more so even than when I was graduating from Grinnell that there's a sensibility around local politics and local activism that is really great and important. And something I saw when I was just out of Grinnell is this kind of urge or celebration of people starting their own things, I would really encourage people to like see what you can show up for that already exists and learn from that. And then, you know, if there truly is a gap in the market, then maybe think about going out on your own. But I think learning by showing up in service of others is a really good place to start. And, um, you know, being willing to just listen and learn from others, even if the kinds of things that they're doing seem unfamiliar, um, there's a lot to learn from um, from people, particularly social justice advocates who've been doing this work at the local level. 
Okay, yeah, that's great. Um, so I think we were just gonna ask one more question before we open it up to um, any kind of other submissions. Um, but since this is like humans of Grinnell, um, we're wondering like, how do you think Grinnell has affected your way, um, like the way you look on the world um, or your work in general? Well, I, I really loved my time at Grinnell. I think college is just like a, such a special and unique time in your life. And I made like lasting friendships from that, that, um, you know, we still, we live like across the country, but we still keep in touch today and um, support each other with each new job move or life event. Um, and so obviously that on like a personal level is just really special. And I also feel like, you know, I can go anywhere. And if you meet another Grinnellian, like you feel like, like you're in a comfortable space and you can talk to them very easily. And it's like a, it's own little kind of family just because it's such a smaller school and people are spread out everywhere. So that um, like on a personal level has been really nice. And then um, I guess practically for my job, like kind of just the things I mentioned earlier about, um, you know, like critical thinking skills and research skills and um, learning about like a broad range of subjects in society that has like always informed my work, whether it was, you know, taking sociology classes or anthropology classes or psychology, um, even like statistics, like as a reporter, like that comes up frequently when you're doing like financial and budget um, stories. And so, um, you know, all those things have have become relevant or like intersected in some way with my work. Um, so I'm just, yeah, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> I'm really glad I went there. I have a lot of friends still that, you know, from our time there and good memories. And Yeah, I would echo a lot of that. And I would just say, I think, you know, when you first graduate, I, I certainly had this cycle of thinking about like, oh my God, I should have been an accountant. I'll never get a job. Um, and I should have done something more practical. And um, it turns out that it's not true. And that um, the critical thinking skills and the ability to write um, are really hard to teach once you are, like, from the employer perspective, um, it's really hard to teach people to be good at those things. It's really wonderful to work with people who come in with skills like critical thinking and um, quick turnaround writing and analytical research skills. Um, and so it's often hard to figure out how to get started. But once you get started, um, the kinds of things that Grinnell teaches you to do will help you accelerate and grow um, in in a job. And, you know, I think particularly about Manessa Cummings, Elizabeth Bob, Victoria Brown, all of whom were really key professors for me at Grinnell and taught me how to write a one page paper. And I use those skills all the time. Um, and I, I don't think I would have learned that. Um, it's certainly very, having uh, now built teams and stuff like that, it's really hard to find that still. So you're doing great. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much um, for that. Cause I, I think both of you are sure a lot of Grinnellians that are in college right now at Grinnell that um they can do whatever they want to and then it doesn't um like a whether it's a traditional or non-traditional route like just finding something that you're passionate about is really crucial so th thank you for that um should we check to see if there's any questions that the attendees might have All right, so the first questions from George um, for both speakers. George is asking, going back to the natural disaster in Texas, how do you both see the people of Texas coping with this unusual succession of one disaster after another, especially within the context of an already ongoing pandemic? Um, how cognizant are the Texas officials of these difficulties? Um. I mean, I think it's weird how people get so resilient to disasters on some level and like, you know, the you know, the number of people I know who have just gone through this so many times, it's kind of scary. Um, 
and again, I think it's just still very uncertain how what the official response will be. Um, so, I, I, George, I feel like it's it's still TBD how the officials are going to respond and whether it creates political openings for new kinds of um, new kinds of um, political leadership. We'll see. I guess one thing I'm very encouraged by is that like. Lena Hidalgo, who's the county judge here in Harris County, has had such an on-point response to the disaster. She's, she's, you know, she just turned 30. She's a Colombian immigrant. She's progressive, and she's the biggest threat to Greg Abbott, um, maybe behind Beto. But um, watching her and the opportunities that disasters create for political leadership and to showcase what a different kind of leadership would look like, that's one thing that makes me optimistic. And I'm looking at who the other panel or who the other guests are and Georgia, who was an intern at the ACLU of Texas last year and my mom. So this is great. I think Sylvia, my mom has a question for you. <laughs> should, should I just um, wait? Is that from from Patty? Is that it's your from Patty Ransavelt? Yes. yes. OK. <laughs> She's also a Grinnell grad. So. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> class of 71. Wow. Hi, Patty. Okay, everybody seems to be missing the point. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, um, yeah, so I, I guess I would say I think I think both of those things are happening. I think there is, um, from my experience covering asylum seekers in years prior, um, some of them will say that it's from like specifically gang violence that is rampant in neighborhoods where basically like a gang will start, if you have like a little business or a little shop, they'll start saying that you have to pay them a certain amount each month, a certain percent of their profit. And then they escalate that number and then they escalate that number. And soon when you get to the point where you can't pay that number, and I, I've heard this from, you know, several asylum seekers, when you can't pay that number, like that's when they kill you or some one of your family members or the threats begin. And so that is like a very, you know, real reason why asylum seekers flee. But, but there is also, um, definitely, especially in like the Guatemala Highlands, you hear a lot, there are a lot of asylum seekers that come from that area that come from um, uh, extreme poverty, basically, and they will tell you that and, um, uh, you know, poverty actually isn't um, a qualification for asylum. So a lot of those folks, especially if they don't have a lawyer, um, and they are you know, emphasizing that they fled for economic reasons, like will not gain asylum. Um, there are other ways that you could possibly gain status, but if you're seeking asylum, it really does have to be from um, fear of persecution. Um, and so it is actually a very kind of specific qualifier. Um, so I guess um, I think both those things are happening and I, I don't know why there would necessarily be more of a focus on that, except, you know, there were recent hurricanes in Honduras. And so I think there were also just like more examples of um, natural disasters and other, um, you know, climate change, another one that's affecting um, the crops and agriculture. So they're just kind of also, um, like recent events or phenomenon that are propelling people for for economic reasons. I don't know if that answers your question, Patty. Yeah, um, so we have one last question. Um, I think this is gonna be our final one because we have um, actually Wiji and I have a class that starts in like two minutes. Um, <laughs> so this one comes from Georgia, um, says, Hi, Sarah and Sylvia, thanks for the conversation. I'll be graduating this spring and moving to El Paso to do immigration paralegal work. Um, do you have any advice, either personal or professional, for a graduating Grinnellian and someone moving to Texas? Ooh, definitely take advantage of the taco situation in El Paso. Um, and there's one spot, I think it's called like Chico's Tacos. I would need to look it up to be sure. It sounds, it's something like that. And it's like um, an El Paso signature taco, which is like a, a, it's like a hardened shell that's then dunked in salsa. It's so good. Um, so definitely go there. <laughs> um, well, and I would just say, Georgia, yeah. Georgia was our intern at the ACLU of Texas. She did amazing work on, oh. um, 
on police reform in Houston last summer. She was amazing to work with, showed up with those critical research and writing skills. We really appreciated you, Georgia. Those will serve you well in El Paso. Email me and uh, I'm gonna connect you with uh, Shaw Drake in El Paso, who's gonna help you get to know the scene there. There you go, taken care of. <laughs> Yeah, awesome. Well, um, thank you so much again for uh, being here and talking with us. Um, the conversation was really interesting and I don't know. Yeah, hopefully we'll be able to maybe meet each other in person at some point. <laughs> I hope so. Congratulations guys on all you're doing and um, good luck. Thank you. Thanks you both have you. a very nice day. Thank you. You too. Bye.